Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Glad you could join us here today. Happy Rosh Hashanah, everybody. I remind you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. And materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Okay, we're going to start off to first with a couple of uh, obituaries uh, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 10, 2023. Buff Brazy Given, author unknown. Buff Brazy Given passed away peacefully at her home in Los Angeles on July 9, 2023, after a brief illness. Buff was born in Chicago, Illinois, on September 5, 1925. She was preceded in death by her husband, Bert Given, parents Dorothy and Nicholas Brazzi, and her brothers Robert and Jacques Brazzi. Buff loved life, and life loved her back. She and her then-husband, Dr. Milton Gottlieb, raised their three children in Los Angeles. Energetically involved in the pursuit of new challenges, Buff worked for the American Jewish Committee, earned a master's degree in architecture from UCLA, and ran her own design firm. In their later-in-life marriage, Buff and Bert shared their keen interest in art, music, travel, and civic affairs with a mutually devoted group of close friends. They dedicated themselves to advancing the positive role Judaism could play to improve international human rights. Into her 80s and 90s, Buff can, uh, continued to set ambitious goals for herself. She authored a memoir, two novels, co-authored a bilingual cookbook, and collaborated on the audiobook of one of her novels. Buff shared her Jolie de Vera with her children, Stephen Donna Gottlieb, Jillian Gottlieb, and Robin Brazzi, six grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Buff embraced Bert's family as her own. Judy Michael Israel, Bob Susie Given, and John Given, Japanese Dennis, six grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. Olinda Morales held a special place in Buff's life as friend and loving companion. Olinda's daughters, Jennifer and Gloria Acosta, and sister Ruth were also devoted to Buff. Funeral services were held on July 23, 2023 at Hillside Memorial Park. Donations in Buff's memory may be made to the American Jewish Committee, Hebrew Union College, and Food Forward. That was Buff Brazzy Given, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 10, 2023. All right, here's one more. From uh, the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, September 17, 2023. James Michael Epstein, author unknown. James Michael Epstein, a noted Los Angeles attorney for many years, died in his Encino home in the early morning of August 27, 2023. The cause was pancreatic cancer, which he fought a long and courageous battle. Jim was married to Janine C., with whom he lived happily up until his sickness and death. During that time, she cared for him with enormous skill and unceasing devotion. Jim died peacefully, surrounded in his final days by his wife, friends, and law partners. Jim was the son and nephew of, respectively, Julius and Philip Epstein, longtime Warner Brothers screenwriters, most famous for their screenplay of Casablanca, hundreds of mementos of which Jim kept throughout his house. He was no less proud of his immediate and widespread family, which included his sister, Elizabeth Schwartz, and his cousin, Theo Epstein, the curse breaker at the Red Sox and the Cubs. One of his many dogs, not incidentally, was named Wrigley. 
His love for all animals included not just Wrigley and his fellow canines, but a whole cat house filled to this day with felines, squirrels and birds that he fed behind his house, along with any stray of any species lucky enough to come his way. If there were a St. Francis Award for kindness to animals, Jim Epstein would have retired it. He was born in Los Angeles on June 25, 1940, the son of Julius and his mother, the actress Frances Sage. Jim was an athlete. He was such a star in football for the Corsair Athletics at Santa Monica City College that he was chosen to play football at Stanford and rugby at UCLA, from which he graduated law school in 1966. After a stint in the Army, he began, working, he began work in the mid-60s as a hands-on juvenile probation officer for Los Angeles County. And after becoming a member of the California Bar, he joined the Los Angeles County Public Defender's Office. His talent as a persuasive criminal defense attorney caused him to be soon assigned to serious felony cases, where his profound skills earned him the fond regard of prosecutors, judges, and other defense attorneys. In time, Jim entered private practice, where he was no less sought after as a leading criminal defense attorney. He also successfully tried several federal civil cases, winning hefty damage awards for his clients. His charm and attention to detail were at the root of his success with juries and the entire legal community. Prosecutors and judges alike trusted his judgment. He would be respectfully remembered and lovingly missed by both bench and bar. All of us fortunate enough to have loved him and enjoyed his company at chess, poker, and the tennis court, or the course of law, already miss him more than we can say. That was James Michael Epstein, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 17, 2023. All right, here's one Israel story from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, September 13, 2023. Israeli High Court hears challenge to its overhaul. A full complement of justices considers the legality of push by the far-right government to limit their powers by Is Isabel Debrah. Jerusalem. Israel's Supreme Court on Tuesday opened the first case to look at the legality of uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's contentious judicial overhaul, depending a showdown deepening a showdown with a far-right government that has bitterly divided the nation and put it on the brink of a constitutional crisis. In a sign of the case's significance, all 15 of the court's justices are examining it together, the first time a full complement has assembled in Israel's history. A regular panel is made up of three justices, though, some, though, that they, say, though they sometimes sit on expanded panels. The proceedings are also being live-streamed. It's a historic day, says Susie Navot, vice president of the Israel Democracy Institute, a Jerusalem think tank that has been critical of the overhaul. This is the first time we've had this kind of hearing. Netanyahu's coalition, a collection of ultra-nationalists and ultra-religious lawmakers, launched the overhaul early this year after taking office. Proponents of the plan say the country's unelected judiciary, led by the Supreme Court, wields too much power. Critics say the plan to weaken the court removes a key safeguard and will concentrate power in the hands of Netanyahu and his allies. We stand here today with millions of citizens to stop the government coup, said Eliad Shraga, chairman of the Movement for Quality Government in Israel, which filed the petition to strike down the law along with other civil society groups. 
Together, we will preserve Israeli democracy. The hearing puts senior justices in the unprecedented position of deciding whether to accept limits on their own powers. It focuses on the first law passed by Parliament in July, a measure that cancels the court's ability to strike down government moves that it deems unreasonable. Judges have used the legal standard in the past to prevent government decisions or appointments seen as unsound or corrupt. A ruling is not expected for weeks or even months, but the session Tuesday could hint at the court's direction. The marathon hearing was largely businesslike, though at times the arguments became tense and heated. In one exchange, Simcha Rothman, a senior government lawmaker who has shepherded the overhaul through Parliament, contended that the court could not be trusted to decide its own fate. Can you be the ones to judge this without fear, without prejudice, without bias? Because you are dealing with your own honor and status, Rothman told the Chief Justice. And you talk about the Knesset's conflict of interest? Chief Justice Esther Hayu chided him, responding that the court does not deal with its own status, but rather the essential interests of the public. In another exchange, Justice Isaac Amit challenged a lawyer representing Netanyahu's coalition who said the new law doesn't endanger democracy. Democracy doesn't die from a few strong blows. Democracy dies in a series of small steps, says Amit, who is expected to succeed Hayu as chief justice after she retires later this year. The judicial overhaul, which opponents characterize as a profound threat to Israeli democracy, has infuriated Israelis across many segments of society. Hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets to march at one protest after another for the last 36 weeks. The protesters have come largely from the country's secular middle class. Leading high-tech business figures have threatened to relocate. Perhaps most dramatic, thousands of military reservists have broken with the government and declared their refusal to report for duty over the plan. Netanyahu supporters tend to be poorer and more religious and live in Jewish settlements in the West Bank or outlying rural areas. Many of his supporters are working-class Mizrahi Jews with roots in Middle Eastern countries and have expressed hostility toward what they say is an elitist secular class of Ashkenazi or Central and Eastern European Jews. As the hearing got underway, a couple of dozen right-wing activists came up to protest at the entrance to the Supreme Court. The people are the sovereign, they shouted through megaphones, blowing horns and holding signs, declaring that they had voted for Netanyahu, not Chief Justice Hyatt. The night before, tens of thousands of people protesting the judicial overhaul had flooded the streets near the court, waving national flags and making pro-democracy chants. The law passed as an amendment to what in Israel is known as a basic law, a special piece of legislation that serves as a sort of constitution which the nation does not have. The court has never been struck has never struck down a basic law before, but says it has the right to do so. The government says it does not. Israeli Justice Minister Yariv Levin on Tuesday said the court lacks all authority to review the law. It is a fatal blow to democracy and the status of the Knesset, he said, insisting that lawmakers elected by the people should have the final say over such legislation. The Attorney, General, the Attorney General would typically represent the government at such a hearing. But Attorney General uh, Gali Baharav 
Miara, a main target of the government coalition's attacks, has refused to defend the judicial overhaul in court. The sponsors of the law then turned to outside counsel. The case is at the heart of a wider contest in Israel between fundamentally different interpretations of democracy. Netanyahu and his coalition say that, as elected representatives, they have a democratic mandate to, ho- to government without being hobbled by the court, which they portray as a bastion of the left-leaning elite. Now the Supreme Court is likely to decide not only what the Constitution means, but what can be in it, said Eugene Kontorovich of the conservative Jerusalem-based Kohelet Policy Forum. This eliminates any possible check on the already powerful courts. Opponents contend that the court is a key check on majority rule in a country with such a weak system of checks and balances, just one house of parliament and a figurehead president and no firm written constitution. They say without the judiciary's power to review and overturn some government decisions, Netanyahu's government could appoint convicted cronies to cabinet posts, roll back rights for women and minorities, and annex the occupied West Bank. The political survival of Netanyahu, who returned to power late last year while standing on trial for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust charges, depends on his hard-led religiously conservative coalition partners who have threatened to rebel if he scraps the legislation. Netanyahu has refused to say clearly whether he would respect a decision by the court to strike down the new law. Some members of his coalition, including, including Levin, have hinted that the government could ignore the court's decision. Legal experts warn that could spark a constitutional crisis where citizens and the security forces are left to decide whose, partners to, whose orders to follow, the parliaments or the courts, thrusting Israel <laughs> into uncharted territory. It was Israeli High Court Hears Challenge to its Overhaul by Isabel Debra from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, September 13, 2023. Debra writes for the Associated Press. All right, now let's go international. This is from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, September 17, 2023. Jews in Ukraine usher in New Year. In a nation at war, Rosh Hashanah brings hope, even joy, amid sorrow and loss by Laura King, Kharkiv, Ukraine. The tables were laid, the candles were lighted, and the last rainy day uh, light was dying as as prayerful voices rose toward the synagogue's ornate domed ceiling. The Jewish New Year was Kharkiv, the Rosh Hashanah holiday, which started Friday at sundown and ends Sunday evening, holds special meaning in this second grinding year of Russian President Vladimir Putin's war. In darkness, we find light, said Rabbi Moshe Moskovitz, the city's 59-year-old chief rabbi, who presides over Kharkiv's landmark synagogue, the largest in the country. Only 25 miles away from the Russian frontier and seconds away from Russian missile range, Kharkiv was vulnerable from the war's first moments. In the months that followed, bombs rained down on the northeastern metropolis almost daily, wrecking hundreds of buildings, killing and maiming civilians, and scattering much of the pre-war population of 1.4 million people. The pattern still reoccur- recurs. Air alarms wailed Friday night, a few hours after prayers, and a festive meal ushered in New Year holiday. In the New Year holiday, on Saturday, a volley of cruise missiles struck the city, injuring five people. 
Our enemy wants us to be hiding and crying in the dark, Moskowitz said in an interview. But for centuries, we have celebrated our holidays in time of war and hardship. So this is so meaningful to us. During the Russian onslaught that followed Russia's February 24, 2022 invasion, Kharkiv's historic Coral Synagogue provided haven to up to 150 people at a time, the last of whom left for other housing only in April of this year. In the synagogue's deep, thick-walled cellars, classrooms and storage rooms were repurposed with cots and mattresses, and the kitchens cranked out hundreds of meals a day. In the siege's early days, Moskowitz and his wife Miriam, 54, gave a simple order. Open the gates to anyone needing shelters, Jews and non-Jews alike. They fed us, they clothed us, said Sophia Huz, 90, who spent months living in the synagogue's basement after her building in the outlying district of Saltivka, now dotted with ruined, blackened high-rises, was struck in the initial wave of Russian bombardments. Together with her 6-year-old daughter, her 18-year-old granddaughter, and their cat, volunteers helped Huz, who is Jewish, reach the synagogue. Daughter Irina, also crying, nodded in agreement. We don't have anything, not a coat, not a comb, and they gave us everything, the daughter said. For an older generation here, the current war is a reminder of, of childhood trauma. Sophia Huz was eight when then-Soviet Kharkiv came under Nazi occupation in World War II. Her small brother was one of an estimated 600,000 Ukrainian Jews who died, many of them shot en masse by Nazi death squads. I remember how terrifying it was, the explosions and the bloodshed, and my mother worrying about us all just as I worry for my granddaughter now, she said. Despite everything, Kharkiv remains home to one of Ukraine's most vibrant Jewish populations. Uh, about 225,000 people in awe before the invasion, a number that has fluctuated, halved at, the, at times, as refugees have fled and again returned home. But Jewish life in the city, which was part of Russia until Ukraine's independence in 1991, has been a painstakingly revived over a span of decades. When the Moskowitzes arrived over 30 years ago, sent by the worldwide Hasidic movement Chabad, he is from Venezuela and she from Australia, many Kharkiv Kar uh, residents were only vaguely aware of sometimes hidden Jewish ancestry and did not know Jewish customs and traditions. In Soviet times, the more than 100-year-old synagogue was taken from the Jewish community and used for a time as a sports hall. Only Kharkiv, only one Kharkiv man who ignored his family's entreaties and enlisted in the Ukrainian army after the invasion con confided a secret to his adult son before being sent out to the front line. I am a Jew, and if I'm killed, give me a Jewish burial. Two months ago, the son came to Moskovitz to say that the remains of his father, missing for months in territory that fell into Russian hands, but was subsequently reclaimed by Ukrainian forces in the fall last year, had finally been identified by DNA testing. The rabbi summoned a minion, a group of 10 Jewish men over the age of 13, for purposes of public worship, and they buried the man next to his Jewish grandmother in accordance with his wishes. Another Kharkiv recruit headed for the battle zone asked Moskovitz to tutor him on blowing the shofar, the ram's horn that is sounded for Rosh Hashanah, and a few other occasions. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish, a fact that has never stopped Putin from falsely proclaiming that his war aim is to denazify the country. On Thursday, with the holiday approaching, Zelensky met in Kiev with rabbis from across Ukraine, nearly three dozen in all, and presented combat citations to a group of Jewish soldiers. Part of Moskovitz's pastoral mission involves Kharkiv's military hospital, invariably flooded with gruesome casualties because the city lies only 125 miles from Bakhmut, the scene of some of the war's bloodiest fighting. There, he offers comfort to the wounded of all religions. The milestones of Jewish life, too, are marked amid the chaos of war. Last year, a heavily pregnant congregant, knowing she would give birth to a boy, asked that he be circumcised, and that the bris be held on the eighth day of his life as tradition demands. But there were no mohels left in Ukraine. The rabbi of Maripol, the port city that was leveled and eventually captured by Russian forces earlier in the war, had taken refuge in Israel. But he made the perilous journey to Kharkiv, flying to the Mol Moldovan capital, Kisanu, and traveled 17 hours overland to perform the ritual. Hours after he left, there was another missile attack. Coming of age continues as well. The Moscovitz's son Yisrael, one of the couple's 12 offspring, will turn 13 in two weeks, coincided with the festival of Sukkot and is to have his bar mitzvah. Rosh Hashanah marks the start of a crush of upcoming holiday holy days, including Yom Kippur, the Jewish calendar's most important occasion. For Kharkiv's Jewish community, as elsewhere in Ukraine, the holidays are a cause for rejoicing. Those celebrations are also suffused with a sense of sorrow and loss. Each correlates with another, with another season of war and a battle that has gone on longer than many had imagined. But many believe that in some ways this war has brought people closer, not only the Jewish community, but Ukrainian society as a whole. There has been so much destruction, but on the other hand we see so much good, so much light that people can bring by helping one another, Miriam Moskovitz said. Ordinary people become extraordinary. Already, since the fighting began, there have been two springs and two Passovers marking the Jewish escape from slavery in Egypt. The rabbi's wife ruefully recalled what she termed this year's express the lengthy liturgical meal that this time was held in rabbi haste so people could hurry home for a curfew. Especially at these holidays, people need an anchor. They need to feel some kind of security, said Miriam Moskovitz, they need identity, they need family, they need community. For last year's Hanukkah holiday, the festival of lights that fell amid tight blackout conditions, the city's mayor invited the Jewish community to place their large menorah, which normally blazed in full view on the street, in a cavernous subway station instead and hold festivities there. And last year's Rosh Hashanah is a poignant memory. With the holidays' connotations of renewal and hopes for the year to come, we all hope that this would be the year that the war would end, Miriam Moskovitz said. Nonetheless, those hopes are being revived. The festive tables were laden with sustenance and uh, symbolizing hopes for a sweet new year. Pomegranates, apples to be dipped in honey. A short distance from the synagogue are groups supported by the Jewish diaspora, the Jewish community center, honored culinary customs with a cooking class, aimed at the community's needy. Hours before the start of the holiday, Anya Latchenko, 41, 
brought her four-year-old daughter, Sophia, to learn to make challah, the yeasty braided bread baked in rounds for Rosh Hashanah. Before, I didn't know anything about how to celebrate the Jewish holidays, said Lacheco, whose home was destroyed last year. Now I want to learn and to teach her, too. And that was Jews in Ukraine Usher in New Year by Laura King from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 17, 2023. All right, and now back home to California. This is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, September 12, 2023. Mediation ordered in Feinstein family dispute. Case pending senator against late husband's trustees centers on estate disbursements by Kevin Rector. San Francisco. Senator Dianne Feinstein's family squabble over the extreme wealth left by, behind by her late husband, Richard Bloom, was on full display in a San Francisco courtroom for the first time Monday before a judge ordered private mediation that will drag the case into next year. As was already clear from multiple court petitions filed in recent months, the dispute is over millions of dollars in assets and several valuable properties, including a multi-million dollar beach house north of San Francisco and a mansion in the city worth more than $20 million. Bloom died in February of 2022. Catherine Feinstein, the senator's daughter from a previous marriage, was power of attorney for her 90-year-old mother in legal matters, as argued that her mother is owed millions in disbursements from Bloom's estate and needs the money now to cover medical bills. Bloom's trustees have said his estate is incredibly complex and tied up in investments, and they need more time to evaluate his assets, tax liabilities, and debts before making substantial disbursements. The hearing provided no answers as to how those assets will ultimately be dispersed, but made one thing clear. The various parties, California's senior Democratic senator, her daughter, the trustees overseeing Bloom's estate, and Bloom's three daughters from a previous marriage, do not see eye to eye and continue to communicate poorly behind closed doors, even over the most basic issues. Neither the senator nor the trustees appeared in court. Catherine Feinstein appeared via a video link as did an attorney for the Bloom sisters. Retired San Luis Obispo County Superior Court Judge Roger Pequa, who was special, especially assigned to hear the case after San Francisco judges recused themselves in the matter, began the hearing by asking the parties whether mediation was agreeable to everyone or whether he would be twisting people's arms by ordering it. Usually when such cases can't be privately mediated and a judge has to step in, none of the parties leave happy, Pequay said. Stephen P. Braccini, an attorney for Bloom's trustees, said that he agreed that the case cries out for private mediation, but that Catherine Feinstein, a former San Francisco judge, doesn't agree. John Hartog, an attorney for the Feinsteins, immediately pushed back, saying that Braccini was mistaken and that his clients were more than happy to proceed with mediation. But, he said, the Feinsteins also wanted a few other things in the interim. Hartog asked Piquet to order the trustees to sell the couple's Stinson Beach House, which the senator and Bloom's estate each own 50% stakes in, and put the proceeds in an escrow account so that interest could be earned while mediation proceeds. He also asked Piquet to order the trustees to provide a full accounting of their work to process the estate to date so that the proposed mediation could be more productive. The request echoed arguments 
from Catherine Feinstein on behalf of her mother in the underlying petitions, which she said her mother has been left in the dark in trust matters and wants to sell the Stinson Beach property because she no longer uses it and does not want to continue paying for upkeep. Hardrug said the trustees have a fiduciary duty to make unproductive property productive, and that requires selling the Stinson Beach home. Not doing so, he said, has tax implications that are detrimental to the senator. It is undisputed that the property costs money to maintain, Hartog said. Braccini argued that Catherine Feinstein had produced no evidence to date for why selling the Stinson Beach home was the appropriate move to make financially. He said the trustees were still trying to determine Bloom's estate tax liability and debts. He said assessing the Stinson Beach home had also been made difficult because Catherine Feinstein or someone on her behalf had locked the trustees out of the home, which Hartog denied. Braccini said that Catherine Feinstein had used the argument that her independently wealthy mother needs disbursements from Bloom's estate to pay for medical bills as a pretext for demanding such payments and that there is no evidence of what the senator wants on the record. Feinstein's health has been a major political issue in recent months, with critics suggesting she is too frail to do her job. She was hospitalized this year with shingles and also suffered from encephalitis, a swelling of the brain which caused her to miss dozens of votes. She continues to need care and has repeatedly appeared uh, confused in public but is back in Washington and is expected as a voting member of the powerful Senate Judiciary Committee to continue helping Democrats confirm liberal judges nominated by President Biden. The litigation over her husband's assets has spilled Feinstein's private affairs into the open during the final chapter of a long, otherwise polished political career. She has served in the Senate since 1992 and was previously mayor of San Francisco. Feinstein's office has declined to make her available to speak on the litigation, calling it a private matter. Piquet posted several posed several questions during Monday's hearing, including whether it was responsible for Feinstein to expect some sort of disbursement, even if it wasn't from the sale of the Stinson Beach home, given that it has been more than a year since her husband's death. To that, Adam Pines, an attorney for the Bloom Sisters, said the Stinson Beach property is unique and that there were other ways to make disbursements to the senator without selling off the home. For instance, Pines said, Feinstein owns about 83% of her primary residence in San Francisco, a three-story mansion on the Lion Street steps right next to the Presidio that has been assessed at more than $21 million, while Bloom's estate owns the remaining stake. The Bloom State estate's minority share of the Lion Street home is worth more than its 50% share in the Stinson Beach House, Pine said, and what is owed in disbursements to the senator could perhaps be paid out as an additional per percentage ownership in the Lion Street home rather than through a selling off of the Stinson Beach home. Pine's argument suggested the Bloom sisters have an interest in holding onto the Stinson Beach home. After hearing from all sides, Piquet declined to order the sale of the home, but ordered private mediation and ordered the trustees to provide to the Feinsteins at least a partial accounting of the estate and their work to, uh, to date to settle it. Some accounting of some credibility needs to be provided, Piquet said. In consultation with the parties, he also set a scheduled requiring 
uh, mediation to be concluded by December 11 unless an extension is requested and a second court hearing January 22nd. That schedule will apply to all three of the separate petitions filed in the matter, he said. Attorneys for the fines, for the trustees and the Feinsteins declined to comment after the hearing. That was mediation ordered in Feinstein Family Dispute by Kevin Rector from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, September 12, 2022. All right, and now let's go on to this one from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 10, 2023. Fran Drescher easily re-elected SAG after a president. Actors' victory comes as union strike against big Hollywood studios continues by Wendy Lee. Fran Drescher was easily re-elected as president of SAG after on Friday, a strong show of support as the Actors' Union continues its nearly two-month-old strike against major Hollywood studios. Drescher, who has been SAG after a president since 2021, received 81% of the vote cast, SAG after said in a statement Friday night. Her opponent, Maya Gilbert Dunbar, received 19%. Jolie Fisher was re-elected Treasury, uh, Secretary Treasury, Treasurer with 70% of the vote, defeating challenger Peter Antico. I am honored to serve my union as president for another term, Treasurer said. These are dynamic times. And as one member body, we will weather the storms, stand on our principles, and make sure our major contributions to this collaborative art form shall never again be diminished, but rather be exalted. The nanny sitcom star has led the union as it joined the Writers Guild of America in a dual Hollywood union strike not seen since 1960. Actors went on strike July 20, July 14 over issues such as how they are compensated by streaming services and the spread of artificial intelligence. When the union announced its plans, Drescher delivered an impassioned speech supporting the walkout that resonated among rank-and-file members. Member unity will be my greatest legacy, Drescher wrote in her candidate statement. Join us in a nonpartisan new dawn. Gilbert Dunbar had raised concerns about the duration of the work stoppage and whether current leadership was doing enough to negotiate a new deal that would end the strike. Gilbert Dunbar, who has appeared on series including Southland, had pledged to put every ounce of effort into ending this strike within 60 days of my presidency. She also ran for L.A. local president and lost to incumbent Jody Long. The election results were not surprising given that the union's leadership had strong support going into the strike, which was authorized by 98% of those who voted. SAG-AFTRA has said it has said it has not heard back from the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, known as AMPTP, since July 12. Prior to the actor's strike, a federal mediator was brought into negotiations. Gilbert Dunbar and Antico advocated for bringing in professional mediators to settle the strike. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass told the Times that I am more than willing to convene people if and when it is appropriate, and both sides have told me that if they felt there was a need, they would absolutely respond. Aside from its conflict with studios, SAG-AFTRA also faces a brewing fight with video game companies. The union's board is asking its members who do work for video games to authorize the union to call for a strike as it negotiates a new agreement with businesses including divisions of Electronic Arts and Activision Blizzard. That was Fran Drescher, easily re-elected SAG after president.
by Wendy Lee from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 10, 2023. Time Stuff writers Meg James and Rong Gong Lin II contributed to this report. All right, here is a follow-up story with regards to the strikes and how it's affecting Rosh Hashanah. From the Los Angeles Times, Friday, September 15, 2023, Hollywood strikes cast a cloud on Jewish holidays. Walkouts throw lives in a chaos of what is supposed to be a festive time by Sonia Sharp. The end of summer has long been a season of spiritual uh, accounting for Jews like Sarah Afkami. But while their neighbors in Pico Robertson are busy praying for forgiveness, the TV writer has an additional concern, whether she can afford to celebrate the upcoming Jewish New Year. I'm going to have a talk with my with my rabbi, said Af- Afkami, 34. It's been a rough summer. The Hollywood strikes have appended life for tens of thousands of workers in Los Angeles, leaving people of all faiths struggling to pay for food, rent, and health care. But in a city that is home to more Jews than Tel Aviv, the labor disputes have also upset the autumn high holidays, a period of festive, uh, festive family gatherings and intense community prayer, when many believe their fates, including their fortunes, are written for the year to come. I'm a child of immigrants, so there's no generational wealth waiting for me, Avkami said. I've questioned my entire life choices. Although health care and work conditions are part of the negotiations with studios, compensation is the central issue in the strikes. With writers and actors both seeking pay bumps and more generous residuals. More union members are not breakout stars. Most union members are not breakout stars, and many struggle to eke out an existence in one of the most expensive cities in the world. It's a common and false anti-Semitic trope to say that Jews run Hollywood. In reality, the film industry is diverse, and Jews work in all types of jobs, many of them not so glamorous, powerful, or lucrative, as shown by the communal crisis now facing thousands of workers across Los Angeles on the eve of the autumn holiday season. As with Aid or Lunar New Year, Rosh Hashanah is traditionally celebrated with lavish feasts and fine holiday clothes. Prayers for sustenance are part of the liturgy, alongside those for, uh, for peace, long life, and forgiveness. Many also have the custom to make donations for Kaporo, a form of ritual atonement otherwise performed by slaughtering a chicken ahead of Yom Kippur. But the biggest expense by far for most Jewish families is the prayer service itself, which can cost hundreds of dollars as a standalone ticket and many times more as part of a synagogue membership. Uh, most synagogues charge thousands of dollars to become members, said Elena Mann, an artist and mother of two in South Pasadena, whose set designer husband is out of work amid the strikes. There's people who are just like, we can't afford to go this year. Membership for a family like Mass cost $3,805 at Valley Beth Shalom, a conservative synagogue in Encino. At Temple Israel of Hollywood, a Reform congregation, it's $3,760. And at Beth Jacob, an Orthodox shul of Beverly Hills, membership would run them $2,630. Prices are similar at large synagogues across the state, from Southern California to the San Francisco Bay Area and throughout the Central Valley. That puts prayer out of reach for most striking workers, even as many feel they need it more than ever. All they want is a place they can come and pray, 
and even though they don't have the means, said Rabbi Zalman Partoche of Chabad of Hollywood, whose flock includes many writers and actors. Specifically by the strike, uh, they want to come and feel connected and loved. Chabad is a Hasidic movement whose modest synagogues are known worldwide as uh, places to pray and eat for free on holidays and festivals. In Los Angeles alone, the sect boasts dozens of shuls, including special centers for Russian and Persian-speaking refugees. We've always helped starving writers, said Rabbi Label Korf of Chabad of Greater Los Feliz. We believe our sustenance is inscribed by God on Rosh Hashanah, so we'll give them all the support we can. Amid the ongoing strikes, both rabbis have redoubled their efforts to welcome those out of work. Still, relatively few Hollywood workers feel at home in Chabad's traditional services, where prayers are sung exclusively in Hebrew and Aramaic, and must be said out of sight by uh, must be said out of sight of women who worship behind who worship hidden behind a, a screen. Others are left out by orthodox interpretations of religious law which recognize only those born to Jewish mothers or converted under Orthodox supervision. For them, LA's alternative Jewish communities have emerged as a spiritual safety net. We, we're a community of folks who haven't always been centered in Jewish life because they're interfaith families or they're queer Jews or Jews of color or they've not had the financial means, said Rabbi Susan Goldberg and Nefesh, a non-denominational congregation in Echo Park. Most synagogues will negotiate with families who are experiencing financial hardship, but few make the process clear or easy. Sometimes temples ask to see your taxes, Goldberg explains. People can come to our high holidays and make any amount of donation that they're able to, including nothing. For men and their interfaith family, that meant renewing their membership, renewing their long-term membership for just $50. I told my parents, and they were agog, she said. My mom, her jaw dropped. Literally, her mouth was just wide open. It's totally unheard of. For many rabbis, the commitment to striking workers goes well beyond the pulpit. Man's children are now attending Nefesh's religious school for free, and some Chabad rabbis have waived preschool tuition for those affected by the strikes. Others have arranged meal delivery and mutual aid. Our clergy are doing a lot more pastoral care, said Rabbi Morris Panitz of IKAR, a large non-denominational community in Mid-City. This is a time of year that comes with a lot of introspection. Who am I and who, who do I want to be in this world? Those existential questions coupled with the tremendous uncertainty of, of the strikes create more of a need to lean on community. With writers and actors on strike together for the first time in more than 60 years, and even major players are often free seat, are offering free seats. This has such a ripple effect on this community, said Rabbi David Barron of Beverly Hills Temple of the Arts, which is offering free services to members in good standing from the two striking unions. I say we should not make spiritual connection a financial impediment during this time when people aren't working. But the costs of free services are considerable, some rabbis say. All of this takes a lot of funds, said Goldberg, the Nefesh rabbi. We have to look we have to look for funding to support a community that's not as well resourced. A single Torah scroll costs upward of thirty thousand dollars. A single holiday prayer book, twenty five to fifty dollars. 
Smaller synagogues must pay to rent hotel ballrooms or high school gyms and hire staff to secure them. Most, uh, most also pay at least one Hassan, a trained vocalist, to help lead the hours-long prayer service, which includes distinct high holiday melodies that are unique to LA's numerous Jewish ethnic communities and religious seats. Sex. Avenue Malkenu, Avino Malkenu, one of the most recognizable and beloved prayers of the liturgy, is sung differently by Ashkenazi Jews at Beth Jacob than by Mizrahi Jews at Nisa, and differently against, again at Chabad of Beverly Hills, though all three are Orthodox synagogues less than two miles from one another in the same Tony enclave. In addition to providing spiritual succor to those on strike, many rabbis have also joined the picket line themselves. It's been important to both uh, to both say that from the pulpit and back, and back that up with activism, said Panitz, the IKAR rabbi, who recently picketed with the Writers Guild outside Sunny Studios. Actually, joining the picket was an important part of that. For some, like, like actor Melanie Ehrlich, the strike itself has become spiritually significant. There's so much misery and shame wrapped up in the experience of being Jewish and not being able to afford it, said the actor, who recently organized a Jewish-themed picket outside Netflix headquarters in Hollywood, followed by a, com a community Shabbat meal paid for with food stamps. The strike is just exacerbating what already exists. For Ehrlich, this season of spiritual accounting has also become a reckoning with the Los Angeles Jewish community, where impressive prayer services sometimes come at the cost of communal care. It doesn't have to have all the trappings, the actor said, just give me God. That was Hollywood Strikes Cast a Cloud on Jewish Holidays by Sonia Sharp from the Los Angeles Times for Friday, September 15, 2023. And now moving on to some other entertainment news. We start off with this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, September 12th, 2023. Musk bio gets, pre gets re uh, pretty rich. Isaacson avoids some awkward topics to preserve the myths of the difficult genius by Brian Merchant. The opening pages of Elon Musk, the new doorstep biography from Walter Isaacson, the best-selling chronicler of the great innovative men of modern history, are jarring, especially to anyone expecting to be greeted with plucky tales of unlikely genius. On the first page, we're told that Musk, the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, owner of X, formerly Twitter, and currently the world's richest man, was born into a land of incredible violence in South Africa, with machine gun attacks and night killings common, where boys have to wade through pools of blood on the way to concerts and are sent to wilderness camps that resemble a paramilitary Lord of the Flies, per Musk. Young Elon is bullied relentlessly by his classmates, but also by his abusive father, until he grows big enough to fight back. Introducing the 688-page biography this way seems designed to address Musk's recent turn toward combativeness and cruelty, if not justifying it, then offering a skeleton key to understanding where it's rooted. But as we learn throughout the book, the Musks are persistent fabulists prone to embellishments and fabrication. And this becomes the first of many narrative sequences that the reader must consider with an eye to truth versus narrative convenience. And Isaacson's truth is, above all, selective. 
Given Musk's recent coziness with white nationalists and peddlers of junk race science and his ongoing tirade against the Anti-Defamation League, whom he blames, rather than himself, for chasing advertisers from Twitter, it seems, it seems startling that nothing in those opening pages touches on his experiences with apartheid. Much of that horrendous violence unfolding in 1980s South Africa was precipitated by a brutally racist government. We discover that only, only that it taught Musk to survive adversity. My pain threshold is very high, he tells Isaacson. We do learn that Musk's Canadian grandfather was involved in a fringe political party with anti-Semitic views and relocated his family to South Africa because he liked the government better. He is described as, as harboring quirky conservative views and that Musk's father is now outspokenly racist. But in a book that goes to great lengths to dissect the transmission of habits and ideas from father and son, Elon is allowed to stay mum. Silences like that come to haunt the capacious hull of Elon Musk to the point that they risk drowning out the project altogether. After the burst of violence in, in the introduction, we move into more familiar territory led on by Isaacson's brisk pro propulsive prose. Musk is a spacey, lonely outsider who is bright but has trouble making friends. He disappears into video games and science fiction and soon dreams of horizons far beyond his hometown and sets out to North America with an entrepreneurial spirit in town. He graduates with a dual degree in physics and economics from the University of Pennsylvania, gets accepted into a PhD program at Stanford, but decides instead to set out into the buzzing startup scene of the Silicon Valley. He found Zip2 with his brother Kimball, sells it, and makes a lot of money. He founds the first iteration of X.com, merges with PayPal, and makes even more. Initially the CEO of both companies, he's pushed out of each. In a bit of foreshadowing, Musk is booted from PayPal because of his monomaniacal dedication to the porn-adjacent letter X, as well as the idea that PayPal should try to take over the world's financial system. His dismissal brought about in a coup led by Peter Thiel and other members of the so-called PayPal Mafia leaves him with a large pool of cash, an axe to to grind, and an aspiration to take on loftier goals. Here, are the, here the limitations of Isaacson's project are revealed. Musk has pushed some of the worst ideas of his young career. From a business perspective, it seemed his colleagues were correct to oust him, preserve their product, and make them all fabulously wealthy in an IPO and later sale, and later sale to eBay. But here's Isaacson's diagnosis. He was a visionary who didn't play well with others. The word visionary in this application is doing a lot of work. The narrative is filled with moments of similar dissonance, with Isaacson quick to praise Musk's incessant risk-taking after a disaster or to, be, or to excuse his rude behavior to underlings as necessary to get things done or to nod along in prose while Musk announces his latest idea that will transform the world. He does occasionally push back, as with Musk claims that a hyperloop will change everything. It did not change everything, but, Isaacson's most, mostly accept, but Isaacson mostly accepts Musk's confident prognostications as gospel. Isaacson, biographer of Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Henry Kissinger, Benjamin Franklin, is concerned with the study of world-moving men and occasionally a woman. 
what makes innovators tick, what makes them so successful. In the case of Musk, the prognosis can be summarized as a large appetite for risk, a willingness to alienate colleagues, a detailed knowledge of industry and science, an ability to process work ta tasks like an algorithm, and a predilection for drawing lessons from video games and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This sort of framing may have made sense in the early aughts when so many were dizzy with optimism that Amazon's everything store and the iPhone would transform the world for the better. It makes less sense 12 years after Steve Jobs now that we've seen the toll the tech giants have levied on society. Labor exploitation at Amazon, Uber, and yes, Tesla. Misinformation and harassment on social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and yes, Twitter. These costs are almost entirely omitted from the equation of Elon Musk. That may be because there is a tacit pact between author and subject in the Isaacson Great Man biography. The author will unearth unflattering personal anecdotes and share stories about the subject's capacity to be cruel. In exchange, the subject's greatness will be treated as an assumption, the raison d'etre for the book itself. In honor of Isaacson's habit of using pithy, memorable phrases to describe a phenomenon, we might call it the Isaacson Accord. And so it is in Elon Musk, whose subject is described as a visionary and a risk-taking innovator, and most pointedly, the one launching us toward Mars and an electric vehicle future. Musk's many fans will surely give those descriptors as a given, but that seems all the more reason to challenge the assumptions. Because the Isaacson Accord turns out to be a devil's bargain, we get a lot of palace intrigue, well-told anecdotes, and some genuine insights into Musk's familial psychology. But the good stuff almost comes in spite of Isaacson's constant framing of Musk as a moody but brilliant world mover. Worse, in exchange for unprecedented access, the Isaacson Accord demands that a lot of the most difficult and pressing questions go unasked and therefore unanswered. Isaacson repeatedly says one of Musk's unparalleled strengths as a manager is his intimate knowledge of the factory floors where his products are made. Yet there is not a single mention of the sweeping allegations of racial discrimination at Tesla's flagship Fremont, California factory that resulted in injuries finding Tesla liable for millions in damages. Workers of color say they were called the N-word and saw swastikas painted on bathroom walls. In 2021, Tesla was ordered to pay $137 million to one employee who suffered racist abuse, though the amount was later reduced. Likewise, there was no examination of the union drives at Tesla plants or the wrongful termination case Tesla lost after firing a worker involved in organizing. In all the discussion of Tesla's self-driving autopilot program, there is no mention of the blockbuster revelation from a former engineer that one of the first key promotions of autopilot was staged, contributing to the false sense of security buyers had in the program. And while a major focus of the book is the impact of Musk's abusive father and the traits that might have been passed down, Isaacson speeds past any explanation of the falling out with Musk's trans daughter, Jenna, allowing Musk to file it away as her political views simply have grown too radical. 
Isaacson does not list her as a source in the book, as he does her, her twin brother, and does not say whether he tried to contact her. Musk's story about Jenna having succumbed to the woke mind virus stands. No biography can or should be totally comprehensive, but it's pretty easy to conclude which sorts of topics and conversations Isaacson decided it would be best to avoid altogether. I started Elon Musk wondering if the world needed another book positioning Musk as a great man. Ashley Vance's book of the same title aptly, aptly covers many of the same bases and finished thinking it's time to retire the entire genre of great innovator biographies, period. The idea that the future is created by flawed geniuses who happen to accumulate great wealth is outmoded and simplistic, and it encourages a flattened view of how technology is developed and whom it impacts. Just, this, just scan the list of sources Isaacson includes in the book. Executives, venture capitalists, founders, and high-ranking engineers. Yes, Isaacson spoke to adversaries like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, but not, at least per the list, to line workers, not to Jenna, not to anyone whose family member died in an autopilot crash, nor anyone who tried to organize a Tesla plant. The bottom line? This is the story of Musk himself once told. Sure, he might have excluded a handful of the details that proved personally embarrassing, but nothing here challenges the idea that Elon Musk is an all-too-human hero valiantly trying to save humanity from the threats he sees cascading down upon us. It's the book Musk would have written himself. That was Musk Bio Gets Pretty Rich by Brian Merchant from the Canada section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, September 12, 2023. It's called Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson from Simon & Schuster Publishing, 688 pages, cost $35. Here's a follow-up story from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 17, 2023, Navigating Musk and His Demons. Biographer Walter Isaacson reflects on the two years he spent with the tycoon by Margaret Roosevelt. When the celebrated biographer Walter Isaacson set out to write about Elon Musk, his subject was not just one of the richest men on the planet, but the most polarizing of global millionaires. How to steer the narrative of a man he considered a visionary, but also crazy at times, plagued by manic moods and self-destructive demons, and how to earn his trust. I don't have an agenda, said Isaacson, 71. There's a large percentage of this country that thinks he's a villain. They hate him. And there's, I think, an equally large percentage of people who are wide-eyed fans and think he walks on water. When a close friend of Musk suggested Isaacson undertake a biography, I was like, wow. That would be cool, he said. It was at a time when he was bringing us into the era of electric vehicles and becoming Time's 2021 Person of the Year and making rockets that can land and be reused and was the only person shooting astronauts from the U.S. to space. But in a meeting with a tycoon running Tesla and SpaceX, the author set conditions. He said, here are two things I'd like, recalled Isaacson, who has written biographies of Steve Jobs, Henry Kissinger, Jennifer Doudna, and Leonardo da Vinci. One is, I don't want a few interviews. I want to spend two years at your side, at all times, at all meetings. Nothing excluded, nothing off limits. And to watch you in action rather than giving you a set of questions. Secondly, I want you to have no control over this book. And Isaacson said, surprisingly, he agreed. 
The 688-page opus details Musk's brutal treatment of workers and colleagues, his impulsive business moves, and his chaotic romantic life. But it also delves into how Musk's abusive father and childhood bullying in South Africa shapes his character. Isaacson writes that Musk's reality-distorting willfulness and his readiness to run roughshod over naysayers may be superpowers that his produce that produced his successes along with his flameouts. The ferocious drive of the 52-year-old entrepreneur may not be balanced with empathy for others, Isaacson suggested, but as Shakespeare writes, the best are molded out of their faults. Toby's got a lot of faults. To what extent did that mold him? Musk gave Isaacson full access to contentious private meetings, encouraged colleagues, family members, ex-wives, and girlfriends to speak to him candidly, and interviews at 3, and 3 a.m. tests opened up about turmoil in his businesses and his relationships. Controversially, Musk shared and Isaacson published encrypted messages with a top Ukrainian official over limits on the Starlink communications satellites that SpaceX was donating to foil Russian hackers. The book describes Musk as cutting off Starlink access around Russian annexed Crimea to stop Ukrainian drones from targeting Russia's Black Sea fleet. But this month, Musk claims that at no point did I or anyone at SpaceX promise coverage over Crimea. Our terms of service clearly prohibit Starlink for offensive military action. Musk denied Kiev's emergency request to activate the network in order to avoid conflict escalation. Isaacson acknowledged the clarification, but whatever the details, the episode drew new scrutiny of Musk's foreign policy influence. Despite Musk's impetuousness and his open hostility toward journalists, Isaacson said the unpredictable billionaire never backtracked on allowing him unfettered reporting. For better and for worse, he has an epic sense of his place and mission in our world that he's going to get us to Mars and he's going to get us sustainable energy, said Isaacson. And if you're that way, you don't mind having a biographer ride by your side. Isaacson's strategy was to shadow his subject relentlessly. He taught him along, he tailed along, he tailed him along uh, clangorous uh, Tesla assembly lines as Musk micromanaged manufacturing and jetted on a moment's notice to the hot, dusty town of Boca Chica, Texas, where SpaceX launched rockets. In April 2022, on the day Twitter's board accepted Musk's offer to buy the company, Isaacson assumed a celebration would take place. But oh no, it was a rush down to Boca Chica to deal with a methane leak on a Raptor engine, he said. You just always learn to have a very small overnight bag and a couple of changes of shirts. Isaacson spent years as a journalist, rising to editor of Time magazine, and after a stint at CNN, headed the Aspen Institute. But he looks back to his childhood in New Orleans, where he now teaches history at Tulane, and recalls, we had a workshop, we fixed cars, we fixed TV sets, we made ham radios together. In hours spent with Musk in engineering meetings on or on factory floors, Isaacson said, I was genuinely curious about OK stainless steel for the axial skeleton of the Cybertruck. How are you going to make the chasse? Those were questions I asked. A key to, to the story is understanding how caring about assembly lines, valves, and chasse is important to the successes he has had. Musk immigrated from South Africa to Canada at 17. 
and then to the U.S., where after college, he made millions from his involvement and part ownership in PayPal. He has homes in Silicon Valley, where he ran Tesla, and in Los Angeles, where he built SpaceX. Musk has fathered 11 children with three women, including musician Grimes. Nothing has hurt him more, Isaacson said, than the loss of his firstborn from sudden infant death syndrome and the estrangement from his transgender daughter, Jenna. Musk has said he has Asperger's, a form of autism, and that gives him a very analytical engineering mindset, Isaacson suggested. Autism manifests itself in a thousand ways in different people, but it means he doesn't have good receptors for other people's emotions, nor does he have a craving to make people like him. The book describes Musk's obsessions with, a science, fi- with science fiction, with violent video games, and with, foundly, with founding colonies on Mars. Isaacson, Isaacson acknowledges he is not a big fan of Musk's Twitter purchase. Enabling extremists to blather on conspiracy theories on Twitter turns me off. But he also allows it probably wasn't bad to open the aperture to more debate on some of these topics. And he contends that despite Musk's attacks on woke mind virus, he doesn't have just one set of politics. He's not always pushing views on the far right or far left. There are times when he's very moderate. In the final analysis, Isaacson considers Musk to be one of the three great innovators of our time. Steve Jobs brings us into the era of the digital revolution with human-friendly computers and a thousand songs in our pocket and smartphones. Jennifer Doudna brings us into the era of life sciences by showing us how to edit our DNA. And Musk is bringing us into a future of electric vehicles and space adventures, as well as blowing a few things up, including Twitter. But there are each people who, 50 years from now, you look back and say they've touched the surface of history and you can still feel the ripples. That was Navigating Musk and His Demons by Margot Roosevelt from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 17, 2023. And now, with this uh, Rosh Hashanah passing, let's read some articles from J. Living, Rosh Hashanah, 5784 edition. So let's start off with this from the Mocker's Desk. And this is called Celebrating the High Holy Days. It is with a heart full of anticipation and a spirit of reflection that I write to you today, inviting you to embark on a journey of tradition, introspection, and renewal as we celebrate our high holidays. One of our most cherished customs of Rosh Hashanah is the sounding of the shofar, as its hauntingly beautiful notes serve as a wake-up call for us. Rosh Hashanah is also a time for celebration and renewal, as we gather around dinner tables with family and friends. In this issue, we delve into some Rosh Hashanah customs and get a new look at Yom Kippur. We have recipes from Israel's master chef winner, Tom Aviv, and a brisket recipe from our mensch Greg Grunberg. We are delighted to fill these pages featuring individuals and businesses that make our Los Angeles Jewish community so unique, and we hope that these stories will help you find inspiration in this season of change. With summer coming to an end and fall stepping up, we have started to fill our calendars with school schedules, work demands, and social engagements. In this bustle, Rosh Hashanah offers us a gift, the opportunity to pause, gather our thoughts, and set intentions for the year ahead. Whether you find yourself in a synagogue, around a high holiday table, or in quiet contemplation, 
quiet contemplation, may you find the space to embrace the beauty of this season. I wish you and your loved ones a Rosh Hashanah filled with love, joy, and the promise of a sweet new year. Shalom and L'Shana Tova, David Nemitz. Please let me honor one of our founding advertisers, Andrew Friedman, who passed away recently. We are very thankful for Andrew, who believed in our publication and gave us great advice. May his memory be a blessing. That's celebrating the high holidays from the Mocker's Desk. And we go on to Mishagas Rosh Hashanah Foods. And this is called Beyond Apples and Honey. Author unknown. Beyond the apples dipped in honey and around a challah, there are many other foods that belong on your Rosh Hashanah table. The Talmud, Karyot 6a, states, Now that you have said that, that a sign is a substantial matter, a person should be accustomed to eating at the start of the year gourd, fenugreek, leeks, beets, and dates, as each of these grow and multiply week, uh, quickly, which is a good omen for the deeds of the upcoming year. Here is a list why these foods should be should where these foods may be mentioned and some other symbolic Rosh Hashanah foods we should put on our plates to start the year. The first food that is mentioned is gourds, G-O-U-R-D-S, or kira. The word kira sounds both like the Yiddish word kare, meaning cut off or tear. By eating gourds or squash, people express the hope that any negative decrees or judgments against them will be cut off or torn away and they will be blessed with a positive and favorable year. The second food mentioned is fenugreek, or rubia. The word rubia sounds like the word yerbu, which uh, the word for increase. We eat this food that contains the request, may our merits increase. Black-eyed peas and green beans are also considered rubia in Aramaic and Hebrew. The third food mentioned is leeks, or karsi, is similar to kares, K-A-R-E-S, to cut up or destroy. We eat this food asking that our enemies be destroyed. The fourth food mentioned is beets or silka. The word silka sounds like seluk, the word for remove. We eat beets desiring any negative influences to be removed from our lives. The fifth food mentioned is dates. When consuming dates, a special blessing is often recited that includes the phrase yet yetamu khatim, or may sins be consumed. By eating dates and reciting this blessing, we wish that any sins or negative aspects will be consumed for a fresh start for the new year. Fish heads are often served representing the head of the year. Other interpretations that we are that we hope to be at the head leader rather than the tail follower in the year ahead, symbolizing leadership, authority, and success. Or it may be used to show how we can be the head of our endeavors to have a year filled with achievements. Pomegranates are a new year staple as the seeds symbolize abundance, fertility, and good deeds. The crown-like calyx, C-A-L-Y-X, at the top of the fruit is believed to have 613 segments, representing 613 commandments in Jewish tradition. Carrots are often served as the Hebrew word for carrots is gezer, which is similar to gezar, the Hebrew word for decree. Likewise, the Yiddish word for carrots is mern, and the Yiddish word for more is mer. 
we eat carrots to remove negative decrees and for increased blessings. On the second night of Rosh Hashanah, it is custom to eat a new fruit, one that has not been eaten in a year or for a very long time. This tradition helps identify the newness of the year and often is accompanied by a Shehechiyana blessing. There are also some foods that we should avoid at Rosh Hashanah. One food that we should avoid is nuts, and more specifically, walnuts. Some Jews avoid nuts because the numerical value of nuts is equal to that of sin. Others avoid nuts since they tend to increase saliva and phlegm, making prayer difficult. Finally, as we set our menu, as we set our menu, we should remember that Kitsur Shulchan Aruch 129.9 writes that there is a minhag not to eat bitter or vinegary foods on Rosh Hashanah, but rather to eat sweet foods for a sweet year. May we all be inscribed in the Book of Life for a happy and healthy and sweet new year. That's Beyond Apples and Honey from the Mishigas Rosh Hashanah Food Section, author unknown. All right, now we go to the Nosh section, and this is called From Tel Aviv to Miami. Master Chef Israel winner, Chef Tom Aviv on Mixing Things Up and the High Holidays by Deborah Eckerling. There are seven traditional foods typically eaten during Sukkot, as well as to Bishavat and Shavuot. They, these are wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. Israel Master Chef winner Chief Tom, Chef Tom Aviv of Rana Restaurant in Miami loves using the seven in all of his high holiday cooking and challenges others to do the same. It's like a Master Chef mystery box, Aviv says. Just put the seven ingredients in front of you and see where you can implement them. For instance, you can use pomegranates in a salad or in a dessert. I think it will make your feast a little bit more fun, he says. Born and raised in Tel Aviv, Aviv became known after winning MasterChef Israel in 2016. I grew up in restaurants. I think that made me a little bit intimidated by food, he said. Aviv spent more uh, spent time exploring food and eating, which is how he fell in love with the hobby of cooking. After the experience of on MasterChef, uh, Aviv realized he could turn the ideas he puts on a plate into a career. That's exactly what he has done. Over the past six years, Aviv has launched unique restaurant concepts in Israel and Morocco. His latest, Branha in Miami, is a cultural expedition that brings guests back to Tel Aviv in the 1970s. Miami's melting pot of culture and cuisines is much like my own culinary inspirations, which combine the vibrant flavors of my upbringing in Israel with my travels across the globe, Aviv explains. The name Branha is Hebrew slang, originally from the word for tree branch that translates to a circle of friends. In his restaurant and through his cooking, Aviv tries to explain Israel. Israel is a lot more than hummus, falafel, and shawarma. He, he believes its hospitality, its kindness, its culture. I try to bring the experience of Israeli dining and Israeli hospitality outside of Israel. In essence, Aviv is a retro-futurist. I think that the present is built from the past and the future, and that is how I try to create my dishes, he explains. For example, chopped liver is very retro. And then I think uh, to myself ahead, what would be the wow factor? 
when I serve it in the future. His cooking is all about creating something new with the respect for heritage. In Israel, there are two kinds of houses, Ashkenazi and Sephardic, Aviv explains. Because I never had official dinners at home, my parents had restaurants. I used to go to other people's houses, pick up my favorites, and sometimes cross them. Aviv likes to combine Ashkenazi and Sephardic influences in his meals, especially during the high holidays. Sometimes these combos are in the same dish. For instance, traditional chopped liver has caramelized onions. Aviv adds spices like cumin to elevate the, pa the, the palate and make it more Sephardic. His egg salad has Yemenite influences, like turmeric. Plus, Aviv makes his Moroccan fish less spicy, so it is more Ashkenazi. As someone who didn't have any influence, I like to mix every the everything, he says. Aviv calls the Israeli cuisine a cuisine in process. At 75 years old, Israel and its cuisine is not yet complete. And this is fun food with familiar tastes. So why do Americans love Israeli food so much? First of all, it's kind of talk, it's kind of exotic and different from what people expect, but then not so far from the from the palate, Aviv says. For example, the Latin crown can understand my excessive use of cumin and cilantro. When you give it, give it to them with interpretation, a little bit westernized and with a fusion touch, it makes people really go, hmm, I'm tasting something new, but I like it. Sometimes you eat something and just say, well, it's very interesting. It's well made. I'm not going to come back and eat it, Aviv says, but this food is easy going even in a fine dining context. When asked about Rosh Hashanah traditions, Aviv says he usually goes to synagogue and likes to participate in culinary traditions. He makes gefilte fish, chopped liver, egg salad, and Moroccan fish. Even if he is not hosting, he will make those dishes for himself or bring them to the home of his host. These are the tastes I need to feel, he says. As someone who hosts a lot of dinners, Aviv thinks one of the challenges of hosting is to enjoy the dinner and not to be a server. He suggests either catering your meals or cooking things that are easy to prepare ahead of time. You do your mess in place. You make your marinations, you cook everything, and you just pop out food at dinner time, he says. I don't want to be grilling steaks when everybody has fun and drinks wine. One of his favorite make-ahead recipes is a version of couscous beef bougnon. You just need to keep it very low fire, and it is what it is, he says. You cook it, plate it, and you eat it. Aviv's favorite food is what he, is what he calls his culinary sin, gefilte fish. I respect the fact that it was possible to make a fish so bland and so colorless, he says. And in the end, it's enjoyable as well. You will never expect that you will eat it and enjoy it, but that's the charm of Judaism, I think. In Israel, I used to go to this Jewish old restaurant and treat myself with three pieces of gefilte fish. It was always by myself. I would never invite anyone because I was embarrassed, especially as a chef. It is what it is. Aviv likes to, do, likes to eat everything which he sees as an advantage. I don't have this heritage of food, he says. I'm not coming from an Ashkenazi background, nor Sephardi, nor Moroccan, nothing. I'm Israeli.
This is what I want to give to other people, so they understand there are much more layers to Israel than hummus and falafel, he continues. Performing artists express their backgrounds through uh, acting and singing. Aviv expresses his, col- his culture through food. And through food and his restaurants, he is exploring himself too. Opening a restaurant in Miami was a personal and business decision. My mom and her husband lived here, he explains. I used to travel here a lot and explore the city, and I felt comfortable. And then also the pandemic uh, made Miami, Florida a very high-demand destination. Also, Miami is a metropolitan area. It contains a lot of Israelis and a lot of cultures in the same place, which is, for me, very similar to Tel Aviv, he says. In moving to Miami, Aviv discovered that there was a lot he didn't know. I had a very clear vision of how I want to do things, he says. And through time, comments from guests watching others, uh, watching other places and living in Miami and understanding the vibe, things change. I changed my usage of strong, hard-cursed spices and tastes. I try to be innovative, but commercial at the same time. Some things were easy for Aviv in Israel. He was a master chef winner and thus a celebrity. He knew what was trendy. He knew every place that opened. And he knew where he could play and where to play it safe. Still, moving to the States was mission-driven and definitely the right decision. Although I came here with a clear vision of what I'm going to do, I know everything and I know nothing, he says. That elevates you. That brings you to another level of cooking, another level of hospitality. I think it was the right move going out of my safe space. And that was From Tel Aviv to Miami by Deborah Eckerling from the Nosh section. And now here's something from the Rosh Hashanah section. The apple and the honey. Dip the apple in the honey. Make a bracha loud and clear. The Shana Toba Umetuka. Have a happy sweet new year. TTO Oh My Darling Clementine. Written either by a Percy Montrose or Barker Bradford from 1884. Author is unknown. To mark the start of Rosh Hashanah, we gather around the table that dip apple slices into honey to symbolize start to symbolically start a sweet new year. While there are references to the apple in the Torah, where did this tradition start? While the idea of eating symbolic foods dates back to the Talmud, according to Gil Marks' Encyclopedia of Jewish Food, the first recorded association of apples with Rosh Hashanah was in Machzor Vitri as Sidur compiled around 1100, which included this explanation. The residents of France have a custom to eat on Rosh Hashanah red apple. Future generations of Ashkenazim adopted the French custom, leading to the most popular and widespread Rosh Hashanah tradition. But that is only half the equation. The first mention of dipping apples in honey occurs in Rabbi Jacob ben Asher's Arba Turim, circa 1310. The rabbi, who was born in Germany around 1269 and fled with his family to Spain in 1303, cited the custom as a German tradition. This tradition was also confirmed by Rabbi Alexander Seslim, a 14th century rabbi, who mentioned the practice in his Sedar, Aguda. The custom of wishing people Shana Tova Umatuka, a good and sweet new year, dates back to at least the 7th century. It was likely that the sweetener, sweetener honey was not bee honey, but date honey, or salon, as it was much more available. 
Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, 1783-1869, explains that eating these foods is not so much a prayer as it is an expression of our faith that we will be inscribed for a good sweet year. This in itself, he explains, has the power to transform any negative decree into a positive one. This year, enjoy the tradition by putting together a variety of apples and honey. Here's the blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam barei pri ha'etz. We praise you, eternal God, sovereign of the universe, creator of the fruit of the tree. Yehi ratzon milfanecha Adonai Eloheinu ve'elohei avotenu ve'imotenu shechadesh aleinu shana tova umtuka. May it be your will, eternal our God, that this be a good and sweet year for us. Make Rosh Hashanah, ha, uh, make a Rosh Hashanah apple and honey board. Welcome your guests with this delicious offering. Get a flat board or a platter for your display. Select an assortment of apples in a variety of colors and flavors. Slice the apples and spritz or dunk them in lemon juice to slow any browning. Purchase a variety of honey, date honey or salon and honeycomb for tasting. Add a wooden honey dipper. Show off your plating skills. Feel free to add nuts, cheeses, or other fruits. That was The Apple and the Honey, author unknown, from the Rosh Hashanah section. We go now to the entertainment section, and this is Boop Oop Adu. Mark Fleischer reflects on his grandfather, Max Fleischer, who brought animated icons Betty Boop, Popeye, and Superman to the screen. By Naomi Pfefferman. In his home office in Los Angeles, Mark Fleischer sat surrounded by vivid cartoon images of Betty Boop, Popeye, and Superman, animated icons brought to the screen by his grandfather, the pioneering animator and innovator Max Fleischer, 1883-1972. Mark, now the chairman and CEO of Fleischer Studios, regarded the work with obvious delight. Mark grew up watching his grandfather's cartoons, six of which will screen at a series of Max's work from the early 30s, Weekend Shortcuts, at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures from September 30th through November 26th. At the time, Max was the only major competitor to Walt Disney, but his almost psychedelic fare was far different from the fairy tales emerging from the Mouse House. The realistic element of his work is one of the real driving forces, Mark said during a Zoom interview. Max's motto was, if you can do it in real life, why not animate? In 1932's Minnie the Moocher, one of the shorts to screen at the Academy, Betty Boop's traditional immigrant father screams at the flapper at his, as his head morphs into a mischievous Victrola. When she subsequently runs away from home and hides in a cave, she's menaced by ghosts and skeletons that swoop and swirl and fly around her. At one point, the camera appears to zoom into the cavernous mouth of a howling witch, whose tonsils moan along with her. Because October is Halloween season, the series will also screen another of Max's spooky shorts, Swing Your Sinners, 1930, in which undulating tombstones terrify a character in a cemetery. Other Fleischer cartoons depict gritty tenement streets that Max, a Jewish emigre from Krakow, may well have remembered from his childhood in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Some publications have cited Jewish imagery as evidence that Betty Boop, whose background is never specified, is intended to be a member of the tribe. 
In Betty Boop's Bamboo Isle, 1932, her South Sea pals are so impressed with Bimbo the Doug's rendition of a Polynesian ditty that they exclaim, Ah, landsman, shalem aleichem. Dizzy Dishes, 1930, set in a restaurant, depicts the earliest version of Boop crooning jazz as a ham emblazoned with the Hebrew word kosher sails through the air and hits an obnoxious customer in the face. I don't know Hebrew, so I had a friend translate it for me, the affable Mark said with a laugh. However, I don't believe that Max really intended Betty to be anything but a product of her time and her culture. Yes, part of that product was Max's Jewish background, but a huge part of her character was participating in the jazz era. Most likely, Max and his Jewish animators were simply having a bit of fun riffing on their heritage as kind of an in-joke, Mark added. On and off screen, Max was known for his madcap sense of humor. In addition, his body of work bursts were with almost psychedelic imagery that, th that is captured and displayed in a playful way said K.J. Ralph Miller, the Academy's Interim Director of Film Programs. Audiences are awed by the creativity and the innovation, the visual storytelling, the imagination. Max, named Mahir Fleischer, was only four when he and his family left when what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire to emigrate to the United States. While his father, a tailor, had been an observant Jew in the old country, his mother insisted that the clan become thoroughly Americanized and speak only English. Max enthusiastically obliged. The family became less religious, although Max did become a bar mitzvah at 13. Mark had, has his grandfather's bar mitzvah speech on his computer. From a young age, Max realized he had an uncanny talent for drawing. He went on to attend prestigious art schools as well as the Mechanics and Tradesmen's School in New York. While still in his teens, he became the youngest staff cartoonist for a major American newspaper, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. In 1929, Max created Fleischer Studios with his younger brother, Dave, who went on to become, went on to direct many of their ensuing cartoons. A year later, Betty Boop became a huge hit, the first fully female animation star and a symbol of women's empowerment. If you look at where women were at the time, it had only been 10 years since they had been granted the right to vote, Mark said. She was a flapper in the flapper era, and Betty Boop also became a pilot, a lion tamer, and ran for president. Yes, she got chased by many men, the sexy but innocent character sports a teensy dress, garters, pin curls, large hoop earrings, a squeaky New York accent, and a cute catchphrase, boop boop ba doop. But she thwarted the predators, once proudly declaring that a particular male couldn't take my boop oop a doop. In that case, a subtle reference to her virginity. A new Hollywood morality code for enforced later in the 1930s forks Max to tone down Betty's sex appeal and adventurousness, transforming her into a more middle-class career woman and a hosfrau. Fans disliked the metamorphosis, and Max was forced to end her series in 1939. Popeye the Sailor and Superman, both inspired by comics, weren't so much affected by the code. Max elaborated upon the source material, giving Popeye his strength from spinach and Superman the ability to fly. During his prolific career, Max also innovated a number of technologies that forever changed the history of animation. Perhaps his most significant contribution was the rotoscope, which allows artists to draw figures over filmed action, resulting in more realistic movement. 
It created the first cartoon utilizing sound, My Old Kentucky Home, 1926, about two years before Walt Disney's first talkie cartoon, Steamboat Willie, a fact not widely known. During the Jay Living interview, Mark recalled his grandfather as sweet, gentle, and loving. At times, they'd watch cartoons together at Max's home in the Windermere Hotel in Manhattan. You sit there with your granddad, and you're not particularly aware that you're sitting with one of the great geniuses of the day, Mark said. I knew he was important, but I just knew him as Papa Max. Papa Max spent his last years in a facility at the Motion Picture Country Home in Woodland Hills, where he suffered from cognitive issues for a time. Mark visited him not long before his death at 89 in 1972. But his grandfather's legacy lives on through Fleischer Studios, which is today mostly involved in merchandising products based on Betty Boop and other Fleischer characters. Mark and his staff are working with diverse groups, gay, black, and others, to create Betty Boop items that will reflect how communities view themselves in the modern world. And on November 19, a new Broadway-bound show titled Boop, the Musical, will arrive at the CIBC Theater in Chicago. According to the musical's website, the plot explores how Betty's dream of an ordinary day from the super celebrity in her black and white world leads to an extraordinary adventure of color, music, and love in New York City. One that reminds her and the world you are capable of amazing things. Mark said that the musical has drawn a dream team of artists, including Tony Award-winning director-choreographer Jerry Mitchell, Kinky Boots, La Cage of Follet, and Hairspray, multiple Grammy-winning composer David Foster, I Have Nothing After the Love is Gone, and Tony-nominated lyricist Susan Birkenhead. He's keen on Betty keeping up with the times. We're never going to do anything stupid or reckless, but sometimes risky, he said. I always say to myself, gee, if Max hadn't taken his own risks, we wouldn't be here today. And that was Boop Boop Ba Doop by Naomi Pfefferman from the Entertainment Section. For tickets and information about the Academy screenings, visit www.academymuseum.org en tickets. To learn more about the history of Max and his work, go to www.fleischerstudios.com. Okay, now on to the community section, and this is called Vintage High Holiday, an interview with the quiz daddy, Scott Rogowski, by Casey J. Adler. The first thing I noticed when I entered quiz daddy's closet off Main Street in Santa Monica was the distinct smell of vintage clothes. It is a room dominated by iconic sports clothing lines from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s with a seemingly random sampling of Taylor Swift t-shirts from the mid from the mid-aughts hung, hung like trophies from a truly bygone era. The second thing I noticed was that Scott Rogowski, the owner of Quiz Daddy's Closet and the very proud Jewish host of the massively popular HQ tri trivia app from 2017 to 2019, was wearing a 1995 Pope John Paul II t-shirt. I'm not sure I've ever seen a fellow Jew wear the leader of the Catholic faith on the, their chest with such pride. At 38 years old, he has the aura of a dad from the early 70s who just got home from work and will play catch with the little guy after he cracks open a cold one. We sat down. Well, we didn't sit down. We walked around the racks of jerseys, sweatshirts, and tees. Between a plethora of quips and mussings, I interviewed him about his Jewish upbringing, his unending love for all things vintage, 
and his foray into comedy. Jay Living. I love that for a Jewish magazine interview, you came in a Pope John Paul II t-shirt. Quiz Daddy. This was a conscious decision. He was my Pope growing up, just like the Queen in the UK. Not that I'm Catholic. But it's just you'd see the Pope on the news. The Pope was a big deal. Probably a bigger deal back then. So it was just one of those global figures like the Dalai Lama or Desmond Tutu or Mandela. If you grew up in the 90s, you just saw these people on TV and heard about them. Or they were parodied in the Naked Gun movies. It's just funny to me. It's ironic. This is the leader of one of the largest brands in the world. I still wear Pope Benedict shirts, which is probably an even funnier Pope shirt. This guy was the only Pope who decided to abdicate the throne. He was just like, yeah, I'm going to step down. I don't like this Pope thing anymore. There were two Popes. We had two Popes un until he just died. He was also what his dad. He was also what his dad was a Nazi or something. J. L. He was in the Nazi youth. He said he regrets it though. Anyways, where did you get your love of all things vintage come from? Q. D. I. I guess I lo the love of vintage started with the discovery of my dad's old shirts. He used to work at the energy department and had this great energy department tee from 1977. I think it was one of the first employees of the energy department. They started in the 70s and he had really, had really cool old shirts that I found. And they're so much better than the crap that we're selling at Abercrombie. I started wearing those to school and then I learned about thrift shops and the fact that you can buy old clothes for one or two dollars, which just appealed to me on many levels. So I started thrifting in high school, and I would go down with my buddy David Weisberger. We would go to the Salvation Army at the bottom of our hill. We went to school on top, on top of this hill in the Bronx. And then at the bottom was the end of the subway line. But there would be McDonald's and Bodegas and Chinese restaurants and also a Salvation Army. It was probably an old movie theater that they converted to a thrift store. It was cavernous. And it was so cheap. We just scooped up all the stuff we could find. Looking back, I wish I had grabbed more. I was probably leaving things that my taste hadn't quite developed into yet. There, there was an element of vintage in the early 2000s. Beastie Boys with rocking old 80s t-shirts. It was a trend throwing it back to the vintage 20 years prior. Then it was strange when companies started making vintage looking clothes to sell in their stores that were actually new. There's a trove of shirts that look old, but they're not. It really bothered me because I just saw it as capitalism destroying another fun thing. JL, we know you love vintage, but your first passion was comedy. Do you remember the time you wanted to be a comedian? Was there a moment that triggered you? The answer is going to surprise you because it wasn't a famous comedian. It was my friend Mark Friedman. He did a stand-up class. We were 16 and he got on stage at the comic strip live and did his jokes. And I'm like, if Mark can do this thing, I can do this. I'm just as funny as Mark, if not funnier. That sort of planted the seeds. J.L. Are there any well-known celebrity comedians that have inspired your style? Q.D. I was a huge Seinfeld fan. I used to watch his DVDs back in college when I was doing my own stand-up. How does he act on the mic? Where does he put his hands? I wasn't sure where to put my hands. That was a big thing for me. I was very scared. You step up on stage with the microphone. Do I take the mic out of the stand or do I leave it in the stands? So I'd watch other comics to sort of see how they did it. J.L. Seinfeld or Lenny Bruce? Q.D. Seinfeld was current. I didn't get I didn't get exposed to a lot of Lenny Bruce.
then he got so wrapped up in his own persecution. Then his later sets were more about just ranting, reading court transcripts. I'm also not a rebel. I'm not a transgressive spirit. Lenny Bruce is almost too dangerous for me. I respect it, but it doesn't fit my style. He was also fighting in a very repressive time, which makes sense. I guess I was coddled and privileged to be growing up in a time where I wouldn't be arrested for saying shit on stage. JL, do you remember one of your first jokes? QD, remember? I still tell them. I had some pretty immature ones that probably aren't a fit to publish. I had a good joke about vintage, actually, which ties into what I'm doing. I would say in 2005, I wonder if there were vintage trends in other eras of our history. Because we're throwing things back to the 80s, but were there colonials, teenage colonials, walking around in the 1770s wearing pilgrim outfits? Check it out, it's a John Winthrop throwback blouse. Do you like my hat? It's got a buckle on it. That's one of my earliest jokes. JL, you've only lived in Los Angeles for two and a half years. What do you miss about New York? QD, everyone's always like New York or L.A. But it's all the same now. Everything in New York is in L.A. Emmy Squared is a great pizzeria in Brooklyn. They just opened up at the Santa Monica Brew Works and it's phenomenal. So now it's like I don't miss it because I have it here. There's a globalization and nationalization of these chains. JL, a homo homogenized culture? QD, the whole culture has been homogenized, which means great burgers are here. There's nothing to be missing anymore. The one thing that rest the one thing is that restaurants close early here. That is the preeminent complaint. Sometimes you want that late night bite and it's harder to find here. But you probably should be eating a heavy meal at two in the morning anyway. JL, so the higher holidays, Scott's preferred Holidays to holy days are coming up. Are you a faster? QD, I am a faster. JL, how do you get through it? QD, it's not a funny answer. But what I do is I just wake up that morning and go to services. If I'm ever feeling hungry or if I'm ever having trouble with it, you just think to yourself, there's so many people who are truly starving every day. And if I can go one day out of the whole year, one day in a ceremonial way to, you know, humble myself before God or whatever it is, I'm going to. There's a part of me that's just in solidarity with all those who are going hungry. So it's a very real thing to me. It makes you grateful for what you have. I'm hungry right now. JL, your grandfather founded the Westchester Conservative Jewish Community Center. QD, yeah, and I don't really speak Hebrew, which is a sore subject because my dad was the son of one of the founders of the synagogue and, they also, and then also the president of the JCC for many years on and off. He was like, how can you go through 10 years of schooling without learning Hebrew? That just goes to show how little I paid attention or how poor the education actually was. But it's probably more of the former. I was a goofball and I really did not enjoy being there. Jay Young, what did you not enjoy about Hebrew school? QD, the school part. I was already in school and then I had to do more school? What the hell? I just wanted to be a kid and enjoy myself. It was a total nuisance. I was in the principal's office every week and I definitely allowed my class clown tendencies to flourish because I didn't really do a lot of that in, in proper school. We had this music teacher. We, might, we made fun of this guy mercilessly, straight up like being rude. I do look back on it with some regrets, but again, I was a kid. JL, what would your advice be to a Jewish teacher today dealing with a kid like yourself? 
QD. Just don't even try. Empathize and be like, look, I get it. I was a young Jewish kid too. You don't want to be here. No one wants to be here. No one elects to go to Hebrew school. You're stuck inside this synagogue, this community center. That's brutal. But you say, it is going to be subconsciously imprinted on you. You will grow up knowing the prayers, the songs, and you'll know what Sufganiot is. You'll want one every Hanukkah. It will subconsciously creep in. JL, you grew up kosher, and you were not really interested in Hebrew school yet. Yet today, you still fast and keep Passover. QD, I do it as a reminder. I do love the traditions. I do love the idea of the book of life being open and closed and being inscribed in it. And maybe it's just because it's important to my mom. So it's important to me, but it's also a nice sentiment. It's just a nice way to reflect on your year, to reflect on those uh, who you've harmed or those you've mistreated and ask for their forgiveness, which I've done. Many years ago, I was dating someone and I slipped up in our relationship and I basically told her during that period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I was unfaithful. I hoped she could forgive me. She didn't. She broke up with me. That's part of what you have to deal with. It was a powerful lesson for me. I guess Catholics can go to confessional every week. We get it once a year. We, we pack it all in in one week. I don't observe Shabbat, which I'm starting to feel a little guilty about. JL, so you've had some high points and low points as a Jew. QD, there's one Yom Kippur where I was watching an eBay auction. It happened to be ending during services. I was stepping outside with my phone bidding on this Roger Maris signed card. I got it. I got the card. JL, congratulations. QD, that's probably my lowest point as a Jew. That was Vintage High Holiday, an interview with the quiz daddy Scott Rogowski by Casey J. Adler from the community section. Quiz Daddy's Closet is located at 2525 Main Street, number 103 in Santa Monica, 90405, and online at quizdaddies.com. All right, also from the community section, this is called RC Provisions, A Cut Above Since 1958 by Jacqueline Weiss. Do you know where your pastrami comes from? If you've enjoyed the smoky meat at a number of Los Angeles delis, it probably came from the same place. Located in Burbank, at the corner of Burbank and Victory Boulevards, is RC Provisions, the vendor behind some of the best meat in town. Holocaust survivors Alex Rusek and Lou Cholodenko took inspiration from their own last names when they found RC Provisions in 1958, originally focused solely on Jewish deli cuts. Today, RC continues to blossom, supplying high-quality meats to delis, restaurants, and grocery stores in Southern California and beyond, for the last 65 years. Machola Denko sold his share of the business to a fireman and exited the company while Rusak stayed behind. Eventually, Rusak brought the, uh, brought the fireman out but had a hard time keeping the operation going. In 1966, he sold RC Provisions to Ron Fisher and Harvey Goodman who worked with wholesale and regional distributors to scale the business. By the time 2000 rolled around, the business changed hands once again. Bill Giamella, a friend of Fisher's and owner of Giamella's Submarine Sandwiches, was the new man in charge. At the time, his son Matt Giamella was working with Giamella's and other family businesses, but stepped in to run things at RC in 2010. Until 2010, RC had been focused on the core of their business, pastrami, corned beef, and chili, 
but have since expanded to offer tri-tip turkey barbecue brisket and more over the last 13 years. We make the chili base for original Tommy's and Pink's hot dogs, so that's a concentrate we make for them, and they add their spices and seasonings and all that, Matt shared. Even with the expansion into other items, chili has remained a staple and is sold around the country at ballparks, sports arenas, and amusement parks. As people moved out of California, they call us trying to find our product in their state, whether it may be Georgia or North Carolina, Oklahoma. We get calls every week from different states around the country where people are moving. It's pretty exciting for us, Jim Cozy, RC's national sales manager, explained. Although you can find quality meats by RC throughout the city, from the Capocolo in Bay City's famed Godmother Sandwich to an Italian roast beef at the fast casual chain Mendocino Farms, the pastrami is what truly put them on the map. A lot of these are individuals that miss the chili or miss the pastrami and can't find it in these places. Not only that they can't find it, they can find pastrami, but they can't find our pastrami and they compare then and they compare and then they want ours, Cosi said. But we get calls from all over the country from individuals trying to figure out a way to get our products into their mouths and into their kitchen. On South Alvarado Street in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles sits Langer's Deli, one of RC's longest standing and most famous customers. Established in June 1947 by Albert and Jean Langer, they opened with the help of a $10,000 to $15,000 loan and products from Chicago's Vienna Beef to get started. Eventually, Albert Langer and Alex Rusak met, but it wasn't exactly love at first sight. My dad did not like the formula that Alex was using for his pastrami, Norm Langer, Albert's son and owner of Langer's set. He worked with Alex to develop a formula he liked that appeased my dad's taste buds, and my dad was very critical of what this product was going to taste like, Langer said. What was developed by Alex and Albert decades ago is the same beloved recipe used today, even as RC has changed hands over the years. And it's not going anywhere, Langer assured. Not only am I using the same product, but I have a commitment from the Giamella family that they will not sell that product with that recipe to anybody else. Today, Norm and Matt are the best and closest of friends and treat each other like family. I will do anything in the world for him, and he will do anything in the world for me, Langer shared. After establishing a solid working and personal relationship with Matt, he said goodbye to working with Vienna B for two reasons their friendship, and he's able to provide the quality products that I need. Rightfully so, the number 19 at Langer's has been deemed a work of art with an exquisite combination of textures and tastes by filmmaker Nora Ephron for The New Yorker, <clears throat> The Best Astronomy Sandwich in America by food critic Jonathan Gold in LA Weekly, among numerous other accolades. Evan Fox, who opened Yeasty Boys in 2014, wholeheartedly agreed that it's the best pastrami on earth after eating there for years. Yeasty Boys has six trucks located throughout Los Angeles that have been slinging up bagels since 2014. After sourcing pastrami through his friend's company, it became clear to Fox that he needed to expand his horizons as Yeasty Boys continued growing. He turned to RC Provisions for a custom 30-hour smoked pastrami and hasn't looked back. Fox describes it as a very heavy smoked, almost Texas-style brisket 
but pastrami. It's a fusion between a New York deli and a Texas-style smoke. It's one of the best things we use in our company. The Rubenstein is their take on the classic sandwich featuring their pit-smoked pastrami from RC, melted Swiss cheese, kraut, and Russian dressing served on a hand-rolled everything bagel. The pastrami can also be found on the Dis track, which also includes egg, American cheese, house-made schmutz sauce, and a hand-rolled egg everything bagel, and is, every, and is available in limited quantities each day. And he would know what makes a quality sandwich. He's related through marriage to Ruben Kulakovsky, one of a few individuals who have been credited with the creation of the Ruben sandwich. My aunt, my dad's sister, married Ruben Kulakovsky's grandson. So are basically family, I would say, said Fox. Like many other Jewish immigrants, Fox's family on his father's side immigrated from Russia to Omaha, Nebraska, which is where his aunt would meet her husband, Kulakovsky's grandson. So the story goes, at the Blackstone Hotel in Omaha, Kulakovsky, a grocery store owner and weekly poker game attendee, requested a special sandwich from Bernard Schmil, Schmil who ran the kitchen. He, uh, he asked for a corned beef and, sour, and sauerkraut, but Schimmel drained the kraut and mixed it with thousands of island with Thousand Island dressing, layering on Swiss and corned beef before grilling it all on dark rye bread. While other legends exist ab uh, about the creation of the iconic sandwich, Fox knows one thing for sure. RC provisions are the best in the business, and we're lucky that we can have access to that type of quality. While you might find it to be a trek to get over to Langer's or a Yeasty Boys truck in Los Angeles traffic, imagine being states away from their meat magic. Luckily, they're now supplying meat to businesses in Florida, Massachusetts, Texas, Washington, D.C., te uh, Texas, Oregon, and Washington. East Coasters will also be happy to find a natural smoked pastrami brisket in the case at Wegmans. We've actually got, gotten calls from restaurateurs that have shopped at the grocery store and loved the pastrami more than their own, so now they want this pastrami in their restaurants, Cossie said. And closer to home, RC has also done special projects at Gelson's and is now offering a pastrami flat, a very lean and not fatty pastrami at Ralph's. Though they've grown their operations and offerings, things at RC have stayed relatively the same since it was founded in 1958. Matt Giamella recalls hearing of concerns from vendors who had relation, a relationship with Ron Fisher that things would potentially get twisted around or corners would be cut with the formulation and their recipes, especially a pastrami and corned beef. Some things may change, but they don't plan to anytime soon. That was RC Provisions, a cut above since 1958 by Jacqueline Weiss from the Community Section. Let's start concluding with some well wishes from the same J. Living, Rosh Hashanah 5784 publication. There's this one. St. John's Health Center, Providence, the Shana Tova. May you and your loved ones be blessed with happiness and health through the coming year. 2121 Santa Monica Boulevard and Santa Monica, 90404. Bonus 310-629-5511. Website is providence.org slash St. John's. Here's another one. The Shana Toma Tova from the Righteous Brothers, the finest American craft liquors. 
Find a store or buy ship at www.righteous-road.com slash locator. Free shipping now on four plus bottles, one to three bottles at $9.99. LA stars are Vendum in Beverly Hills, Glatmark, LA, Cambridge Farms, and The Cask. All right, here we go. Shana Tova to all from Celia. Discover a modern resort-style retirement community in Pacific Palisades. Assisted living, independent living, and memory care. Luxurious residences with designer finishes, floor-to-ceiling windows, and stunning views. Exceptional am amenities, including a state-of-the-art vitality center with a hydrotherapy spa. Fresh seasonal cuisine featuring locally sourced produce for healthy living. Personalized care guided by licensed nurses. Visit us, 310-310-8218. Website is livecelia, L-I-V-E-C-I-E-L-A dot com. Here's a few more. The Shana Tova, wishing you and your family a happy, healthy new year. Free consultation, law offices of Nadar A. Nadar, real estate attorney. Landlord-tenant disputes, real estate litigation, evictions, lease terminations, habitat Habitality issues, escrow, deposit recovery, assisting brokers with legal matters, assisting real estate agents with legal matters, and easement issues. 14545 Friar Street, Suite Number 102 in Van Nuys, 91411. Phone is 818 697 2470. Website is Nader2LAW.com. Nader Aaron Nader. Here's this one from Our Family to Yours. Wishing you the best this Rosh Hashanah. Happy New Year from the Lou family. Ted, Betty, Brennan, and Austin. Paid for by Ted Lou for Congress. Here's one. Shana Tova. Wishing you a new year full of sweet blessings. Congresswoman Sydney Kamalagar, Kamalagar Dove. Paid for by Sydney, Sydney Kamalagar Dove for Congress. And here's one. Shana Tova Umetuka from Naamat, USA. Now, Ahmet USA helps, so helps women, youth, and families in Israel by supporting preschools, high schools for teens at risk, scholarships, domestic violence services, and advocacy against harassment and discrimination. Learn more, donate, get involved, 818-431-2200, website www.naamat.org. Here's another one. As we enter the new year, we recognize the high holidays are a time for our entire community to come together to welcome the new year and to reflect on the past. During this time of reflection and prayer, may we continue to stay connected. Honoring life, family, and tradition, the Shana Toba, Mount Sinai is here for you 24-7, 365. Mount Sinai Memorial Parks and Mortuaries. Phone is 800-600-0076. Website is www.mountsinaiparks.org. Uh, locations in Hollywood Hills, 5950 Forestland Drive in LA, 90068-FD number 1010, and Simi Valley, 6150 Mount Sinai Drive in Simi Valley, 93063-FD number 1745, dedicated to the entire Jewish community as a service of Sinai Temple, Los Angeles. All right, here's a different ad. As Israelis rejoice in the sound of the shofar, we're also preparing for the wail of the siren. With the growing threat of a war with Hezbollah, we can't ensure this Rosh Hashanah will usher in a peaceful year. But with a new campaign to add 300 urgently needed ambulances to MDA's fleet, we can save lives no matter what 5784 brings. 
Make a donation today or contact us about how you, your family, or synagogue can provide the ambulances MDA will need. Visit afmda.org slash give or call 866-632-2763. American Friends of Magan David Adom, Saving Lives, It's in Our Blood. Let's throw in this last one. Cash available for all Californians. Use a reverse mortgage as part of your financial portfolio. Residents 55 years old and over are eligible. I offer reverse second mortgages. Cash out up to $4 million. No mortgage insurance uh, programs are available. Free no obligation consultation in your home with a printout of your eligible funds and answers to your questions. You can also purchase a new home with a reverse mortgage. Gabriel Lackman, Reverse Mortgage Specialist, Option Funding Incorporated, 14165 East Thousand Oaks Boulevard, Suite 260 in Westlake Village, 91362. Bonus 8105-358-3960. Hopes that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Addiction. Until next time, Shalom, Happy Rosh Hashanah, Peace.